Well, this morning, uh, you get to hear from uh, one of the members of our preaching team here at Mount Hope. And if you're new with us uh, here at Mount Hope, we do have a preaching team that delivers the Word of God. There will be uh, different ones of us you might hear preach uh, from time to time. Myself, Pastor Brian, or as this morning, Justin Joseph. One of the reasons we do communication of God's Word as a team, I was thinking about it this past week, one of the benefits and blessings of it is this. Last week, I was working on the first-person message, if you were here last Sunday, that you heard, and I was working on crafting that and, and praying about it and delivering God's Word in that creative way. But then I thought, you know what, at the same time, Justin was working on this Sunday's message that you're going to receive and hear this morning. And at the same time, Pastor Brian was working on a message that he's getting ready to preach to you later on in January. And I thought, I love doing ministry as a team because you have people praying about and working on these messages uh, simultaneously and preparing for the time uh, to deliver it that God has. And I, so I love doing ministry as a team. Justin Joseph, Many of you may know him. He's been a deacon here at Mount Hope. He's the newest member of our preaching team. But let me give you a little bit of background on him in case you don't. He's uh, married to Alin, uh, his wife Alin, and has, they have two kids, Ethan and Noah, two boys. Justin grew up in New Jersey uh, originally. He came to know the Lord at an early age. He was afraid of public speaking. Anyone identify with that? Who is afraid of public speaking? Anyone? Nobody. Nobody. It's the greatest fear that everybody hears has, so I'm just assuming you're too afraid to raise your hand. Because um, people, the, uh, all the studies say that some people are more afraid to speak in public than they are of death. Uh, but uh, he was raised in New Jersey. He was afraid to speak, but he began preaching at an early age. In fact, at the age of 10, he started uh, preaching in different places. He moved to New England to complete his studies at Boston University. Uh, worked in marketing for the next uh, 13 or so years, different companies around Boston, uh, until this past year, he moved into a position as a professor at Boston University, uh, working in communication and marketing there at Boston University. He's also received his MA from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary as well. Uh, he's preached in Nigeria, Guyana, Oman, uh, as well as many other places uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. So that's a little bit about Justin. That's one part of the reasons we're excited to have him as a part of our communication team at Mount Hope, but most of all, because he loves Jesus and he communicates his word well. And so would you welcome Justin this morning as he comes to preach? Thanks, Pastor. Thank you. Well, good morning, church. Such a joy to be here in the house of God again this morning. Amen? Amen. What a powerful song we sang earlier today. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Lead me to the cross. What an absolutely powerful, powerful song that we sang. And I, I don't know about you, but this morning I thought that's the word of God to the church this morning. Just rid me of myself, I belong to you. It's one of the hardest prayers to pray, to say, Lord, it's not about me, but it's about you and your kingdom and your world and your mission, your plan, and to start to focus on those things, especially as we gather here today on this final Sunday of 2014. Can you guys believe it's the final Sunday of the year? Flies by, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Here we sit on this final Sunday. 
We look back on a year that's gone by, and we look forward to a year that's about to come. And for many of us, it's a time to look back and say, God, I I really didn't do what I set out to do for you this year. And then we start to say, God, I'm going to do these great things for you in the year that's coming up ahead of us. There is a lot of going back and forth when it comes to this final Sunday of any given year. I think for us, it's got to come back to that, that song. Lord, rid me of myself. I belong to you. It's amazing. The more and more we think about it, how do we rid ourselves of us and focus on God? You know, I think in my life personally, there's nothing that's taught me more about ridding me of myself than parenting. I think as soon as you have children, you start to realize, hey, life is not about me anymore. It's not even about my wife and me anymore. It's about these two little people that are running around in our house doing everything they want to do in our house. But I think it starts even before that. Think about it. Even before the children are actually even born, you start to realize it's not about you. There's that nine-month-long process that takes place before the child is even born where You know, think about it. There's emotional agony. There's physical distress. There is stress. There is this constant testing of our sanity that goes on for nine months. And that's just what the dad goes through. (laughs) I, I can't even imagine what moms go through during that process. Nine long months, and you're realizing every single day, it's not about me. It's about someone else. And you get into that delivery room, and dads, you know this, it immediately becomes not about you. And it's immediately about mom as the doctors and nurses or everyone are focused on mom. But here's the interesting part. After a couple of minutes, maybe a few hours, it's not about mom anymore either. It becomes about that baby. And this is what I think we're learning as this year goes by. We're learning that, you know what, there's a part that we each play, but in the end, it's about someone else. And that's what God is teaching us as a church, I think, throughout this year and the year ahead, that yes, each one of us have important lives, each one of us play an important role in the kingdom of God, but ultimately, the story is not about us, it's about the one who created us. And that's why we're gathered here today to worship, that's why we're gathered here to focus on him. Look, it's so easy to focus on us, to focus on the problems that we go through, the things that we experienced just this past week maybe, it's so easy to focus on those things. I think even from an early age, we are trained to focus on ourselves. Uh, Pastor Rick mentioned before that I have two sons, Ethan, who is three years old, and Noah, who just turned one recently. If you ask Ethan today, who built the ark, knowing full well that he's a brother named Noah, he will tell you, Noah and Ethan built the ark. (laughs) Because he can't share any of the praise, any of the glory with his brother. It's about him. In fact, there are days when my wife and I will be sitting upstairs and we'll sing, who built the ark? And then we'll say Noah, and from way downstairs we'll hear, and Ethan, because he doesn't want us to forget him. It's about us. Everything is about us. We want the world to focus on us. But today when we open up scripture, I think we're going to find a portion of scripture where God is clearly teaching his people that it's not about you, though you play a very important part, ultimately it's not about you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to the book of Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, and it's a pretty long portion, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses uh, from that section, some of the highlight verses. Joshua chapter 6. We read there like this in verses 1 through 20. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. 
Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. I think for many of us, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. For many of us, it's that epic, dynamic, incredible victory, one of the most incredible military victories that is ever recorded in Scripture and probably throughout all of history where the people of Israel march up to one of the most heavily fortified cities in history. They march up to it, and without lifting a sword, without lifting a shield, they are able to bring the walls of this impenetrable fortress down to the ground just by walking around a city and shouting at the time God told them to shout. An unbelievable military victory, a victory with no precedent, a victory that no one had seen before in history, but nevertheless a victory that God had given the people of Israel. We read about this victory as seven unbelievable days, and oftentimes we focus on the fact that it was seven incredible days, but church, make no mistake, this is not a seven-day story. This is a story more than 500 years in the making, more than 500 years to get to this point. I don't want to go through all of the history of it before, but for those of you who have read through the Bible, you know that it starts with creation. Man is separated by God through his sin and God deals with man in a very peculiar way and he has a way for the man to once again join back to him. But again, man separates himself from God over and over again. Eventually, God calls a man named Abram and Abram becomes the new one that God chooses and God decides to set a promise in place, a covenant in place through Abraham. And one of the key parts of that covenant is God tells Abraham that if you follow me, if you obey me, if you leave your country and your kin and you come after me, I will bless you in a way that no one has ever been blessed. Remember, this is a man who had no children. God promises him to make him the father of many nations. But more importantly, God gives him another promise too where he says, I will give you this land. He was looking at the same area that the people of Israel 500 plus years later are marching around at this point. God made a promise hundreds of years before, but it's about to see its fulfillment during these seven days. Hundreds and hundreds of years before. How many of you guys know that our God never fails on his promises? 
that our God is a promise-keeping God. If he has made a promise in your life, it may take lifetimes to achieve it, but God does not forget his promise. You can take his word to the bank. His word will never pass away because our God is a God who works in promises, and he keeps those promises. You may be sitting here on the final Sunday of 2014 saying, God, I did not accomplish what I set out to accomplish. I did not get the answers to the prayers I had prayed, but if you are sitting here today with a promise that you received from this book, then trust me, those words will come true. That promise will find its fulfillment in your life. Our God works in promises, promises he makes to his people, promises he makes through this word, and that promise never fails. If you want an example, look back in the book of Genesis. When man is separated from God, God immediately makes a way for man to be reunited with God. He prophesies, he promises right in the Garden of Eden. He tells them, I will make a way one day. When he says in Genesis 3.15 that I will bring a separation between the seed, of man, the seed of woman and the serpent. And I will cause the serpent to strike the heel of the man, but the son of man will crush the head of the serpent. The promise is made hundreds and thousands and generations before. And then what happens over those hundreds of years later? Do you think the promise failed? Did the promise wither? Did the prophecy go away? Bear with me for a second. God's story is full of promises. Let's see if those promises come true. In Genesis 3.15, that promise was called the seed of woman. Jesus was. Genesis 49.10, the promise said that he would be from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was. 2 Samuel 7.16 said that he would be from the line of David. Jesus was. Isaiah 7.13 said that he would be born of a virgin. Jesus was. Micah 5 verse 1 says that he would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was. Daniel 9 says that he would be rejected before the destruction of the temple. Jesus was. Daniel, uh, Isaiah 9 says his ministry would be in Galilee. Jesus was. Isaiah 53 said that he would be despised, rejected by his own people. Jesus was. Zechariah 9 said that he would make a triumphal entry on a new donkey. Jesus did. Zechariah 11 said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was. It said Daniel, the book of Daniel said that he would be known as the son of man. Jesus refers to himself 88 times as the son of man. Church, what I'm trying to tell you, his promise never fails. There are promises, there are promises about his life, about his death, about his birth, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection, about the fact that his clothes would be parted, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, promises that were made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, and every single one of them found their fulfillment in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He does not fail on his promises. Our God, who is a promise-making God, is a promise-keeping God. And that's what you and I have to hold on to today, that our God does not fail on his promise. So he makes the promise in Genesis and here in the book of Joshua, they are about to experience the fulfillment of one of those promises. Imagine the way they feel the day they walk up to the city of Jericho. Remember, this is many years in the making. In fact, it's better probably for us to look at how far they had traveled to get to that point of their lives. We know that the people of Israel were kept captive as slaves in Egypt. They had lived in the northern part of Egypt and they had suffered there for many, many hundreds of years. They were suffering as slaves in Egypt. 
But little by little, as God takes them away from the captivity of Pharaoh, leads them to the Red Sea, destroys Pharaoh and his armies, and starts marching them down into, the, into Sinai, and you can see little by little, they are crawling their way across the desert. The red line you see there is not a 5, 10, 15, 20-day journey. That's 40-plus years of walking in the desert that you're looking at. And God leads them step by step by step to the point where they cross the Jordan River and they've come to the city of Jericho. Look at the wandering that they've gone through over these many, many years, wandering through the desert. Do you understand that when they come up to the city of Jericho, they had already been wandering for many, many decades, many generations they'd been wandering. And for many of us sitting here right now, this is the part that becomes hard to understand because I'm sure it was tough for the Israelites to understand as well. After all this marching, God, after all this walking, Lord, after all this suffering in the desert, you bring us up to a city, and your first command to us is to what? Walk around the city. It makes no sense. There is no logic behind this. The, the fact that we would march and march for 40 long years, and at the very end of it, what's the command? March again. For some of us, you understand what this feels like because 2014 was probably filled with this type of a feeling that I struggled, I walked, I marched, I led, but at the end of it, all I hear from God is to keep going, is to keep walking, is to keep marching because I'm still not going to get my answer yet. But sometimes the circle, sometimes the march that we have to take, sometimes it does not make sense, church. Sometimes it does not make logical sense to human beings. Think about it. How many battles in history have been won by people walking around a city? Zero. There's never, that's never happened. It's unprecedented. And we are, God is here asking the people of Israel, can you trust me even if you haven't seen me do this before? Even if you haven't seen the answer in this format before, can you still trust me? Can you still go with me an extra step? Can you still walk another mile with me even if you don't see the answer, even if it makes no logical sense right now? Can you still walk the extra mile with the Lord today? Church, some of you are tired. Some of you are weary. It's been a rough, tough year for you, full of difficulties that you can't even talk about in this place. It's been rough on you this past year. But for some of us, the command is not the answer coming right away, but sometimes the command is, can you keep walking a little bit further? Can you go a little bit further? Can you be stretched beyond what you think you can be stretched? Can you go a little bit further? What is God teaching us in the middle of the march? What is God teaching us in the middle of the process? He's teaching us, trust me a little bit longer. Trust me a little bit longer, and you're about to see what I'm going to accomplish in your lives I think it's important that once you notice the journey that they go to, you need to understand what the walls of Jericho look like. Jericho has been dug up by archaeologists for many years. We know exactly where it is. We have a very good understanding of what it possibly looked like at the time. But this is a good way of looking at what Jericho looked like. It was not actually one set of walls. It was two walls. The first set of walls going over 25 feet high. And the second set of walls after a steep incline would have been 40-something feet off of the ground. It is not a simple task. There is no easy way to get through this. In fact, look at what God does to them. He does not call them and say, hey, bring all the weapons of, of siege warfare to the walls. He doesn't do that. And we know that armies had attacked walled cities throughout this time. We know that through history. 
But God doesn't tell them, hey, bring ladders. He doesn't say, bring scaling hooks. Do not bring battering rams. He doesn't say any of this. Instead, he simply says, just get to the city and then follow my instructions when you get there. Because the promise is still in play. The promise was that this city is yours. All you have to do is trust me through the process to get to the city. And the first part of that process was the circle. It's amazing because there's nothing about walking in a circle that really says that I'm getting somewhere, does it? There's nothing about walking in a circle that says I've gotten somewhere. In fact, I can think about the days I walk in circles. It's usually when I'm pacing. It's usually when I'm worried and I'm walking in a circle. There's nothing victorious about that walk. There's nothing victorious. It's worry. It's full of anxiety. It's full of stress. It's full of doubt. That's what that walk usually looks like. I'm walking in a circle. And I'm building this trail sometimes in my carpet full of, full of worry, full of doubt. I'm building a trench throughout my room because I realize how much I'm worried, how much I'm doubting, and I start to make a pacing circle. There is nothing victorious about a circle. In fact, the first time I moved to New England back in 97, I started driving in New England. I found one of these things called a rotary. By the way, you guys know the rest of the country is way beyond that, right? We know, we, we know how to make left turns without going in a circle. You guys realize that, right? Rotaries are one of those things that get you lost more, more often than not. It's a circle. It's telling us that circles, walking in circles, there's nothing that looks victorious about walking in a circle. Yet God commands them and calls them to walk in a circle because God doesn't always work the way we expect him to work. He does things his way because ultimately he's showing us it's not about us, it's about him. That he ultimately gets the glory in these stories. Think about the way he works. It makes no human logical sense. David was chosen among his brothers, but every one of his brothers were more qualified, better looking, better in battle. Every one of them were more qualified. But when Samuel shows up to anoint the next king of Israel, God says, do not pick him, do not pick him, do not pick him. Pick the youngest, most unexpected one to take my place, to, to, to take the place as king of Israel. Think about the people he chose, Jesus chose when he came to this earth. God chose, Jesus chose 12 nobodies. He could have chosen 12 politically connected people, 12 rulers of Israel, 12 governors of that, those provinces. He chose 12 fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies to carry on his work. God does not have to work the way we think he has to work. He works in ways where ultimately he gets the glory from it all. Here's the ultimate point of it all, church, that God's story is about God's glory, that God's story is being written every single day through lives like yours and lives like mine, lives that may not ultimately matter in the big plan of the world or the big scheme of the world, but they matter in the kingdom of God because they're writing his story. David's life mattered because he was writing God's story. Moses' life mattered because he was writing God's story. Joshua's life matters because he was writing God's story. If you want to know if my life will matter in 2015, my simple request to you, church, write the story of God in 2015. Let my life write his story. Even if it seems like I'm going in circles, even if it seems like I'm getting nowhere, write God's story this coming year. 
That means spending more time in God's presence. That means reading the word of God more. That means ministering to those around us. That means humbling ourselves and making life less about me and more about God. It's different steps that each of us can take in different ways because ultimately the question is, whose story are you writing on this earth? For many of us, it's a constant quest to write our own story when God is saying, can you write his story? He does not work in the ways we think he has to work because he's so much greater than those ways. After World War II and close to the Cultural Revolution in China, communism, communism began to take over China and there was so much worry at the time as Western missionaries were really the only conduit for Christianity in the country. There were many Western missionaries that had, that had infiltrated many parts of China and had spread the gospel very successfully. Some, some estimates say that back in the middle 1900s, there were close to a million Christians in China because of the Western missionaries that had done such great work at that time. But then as communism started to rise, they started to make it very difficult to be a Westerner or a Western missionary in that country. And systematically, they were able to expel Christian missionaries that were in that country. And as the last Western missionaries left China, the worry of the missionaries was, oh no, all these years of work are going to be destroyed. There's no way that God's, God's word will be spread if the Western missionaries are kicked out of China. But you know what started to happen is that the church started to go underground in China. That many house people, people in different houses would meet together and house churches were blossoming all over the country. And that people who loved the word of God knew now they had to protect the word of God for fear of, for fear of punishment. And they started to spread the word of God and keep pages of the Bible hidden so that they could spread the word even more and more. And the church started to grow indigenously. And within China, the church started to grow. You know, the latest estimate right now is that there are 52 million Christians in China. Because man thought that, that God's world would end and God's word would end and the empire would end as soon as the Western missionaries were kicked out. But God does not have to work in the ways of man that he is so much more powerful that even if the Western missionaries are kicked out, he'll build up a church out of the indigenous people of China. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you work in this world because he does not have to work in the ways that we think he has to work. 52 million Christians in China today can testify to that, to a growing, growing house church movement that's taking place there. But what else happens in this process? Sure, God is not working in the way we expect him to work as they walk around these walls. But what else is he teaching us? Think about what a circle is. You'd walk around the building, walk around the wall one day. You start at point A. Where do you end up at the end of the day? Point A. Think about it. A circle is just one big start, one place, and end in the same place. For how many of us is this the situation in life? That I started 2014 with these tremendous goals, with this great anticipation of what this year would be, how I would serve the Lord, how I would bless my family, how I would grow in Christ during 2014. But we stand here at the last Sunday of 2014 and we look back and we say, you know what, I'm still at point A. For many of us, a circle seems like an endless loop that just keeps happening. Year after year after painful year, we walk and we walk and we walk, and at the end, we're at the exact same spot where we started. What is God calling us to do in the middle of the circle? What is God teaching us in the midst of the circle? For many of us, it's the fact that when we're walking and we walk, we walk and we keep walking, we realize that we're not making any progress, so what do we do? We stop. 
You know what? I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish. God didn't answer the prayers that I thought he would answer. So you know what? I'm going to stop now. I'm done marching. I'm done following Jesus. But for us to understand what God is doing, we need to look at the Israelites. Had they stopped after one rotation around the city, the plan that God had for them would never have been accomplished. Had they stopped on day two, the plan would never have been accomplished. Day three, four, five, six, never would it have been accomplished. They had to keep marching. You and I are called, church, to keep walking in this generation, to keep marching even when we don't get what we want in the way that we want, in the time that we want. We are still called to march forward for Jesus to keep walking knowing that his ultimate plan is so much better than the temporary plan I think I have right now. There's a great book written by an author named Jim Collins, and if you've heard this story before, forgive me, but Jim Collins writes a great book about being great by choice. And in his book, he analyzes two great explorers in history. He analyzes why one was so successful and one was not so successful. The two explorers were Roald Amundsen from Norway and Robert Scott from Great Britain. These two explorers set out in 1910 to get to the South Pole first. It was a race to get to the South Pole. Two countries, two different teams, two expert teams that were going to face the treacherous conditions of Antarctica and get to the South Pole. The point was to plant their country's flag on the South Pole first. Let's make no mistake, this is not an easy journey. 1,400 miles. That's like walking from here to Chicago and back. That's how far they had to go. 1,400 miles in the worst conditions on earth. Almondson set up a team, he was the man from Norway, he set up a team of expert, expert endurance walkers, walkers who could walk a long period of time, expert mountain climbers, expert, uh, experts in every area of athletic fitness. He organized them, set up their packs, had them organized so that even if they ran out of food, they would have extra left over. If they ran out of provisions, they would have extra left over. He overplanned and overemphasized the struggle. Meanwhile, Scott emphasized speed. He said that we need to move as fast as we can, we'll have a bigger team, and we'll move quickly, we'll run as fast as we can. Endurance is not the key, speed is the key. So Scott and Almondson start on pretty much the same day, and they set out for the South Pole, 1,400 miles journey. Let me just fast forward to what ends up happening. Scott and his team set out, and every single member of his team dies before they ever make it back. Amundsen and his team leave on the same day and arrive back from the South Pole back to their camp on the exact day they predicted they would land. How did that happen? How did one team suffer and die, and how did the other team make it all the way and back on the exact day they predicted? Jim Collins writes in his book that they did something called the 20-mile march, where every single day, Amundsen and his team dedicated in their minds that no matter what the conditions are, we will march 15 to 20 miles that day. We will march 15 miles and we will rest. We will march 15 miles and we will rest. We will march 20 miles if possible and rest, but we will never go further than that and we will never go less than that. They put in their minds that we will keep going no matter what. Meanwhile, Scott and his team, they would see good weather one day and they would say, hey, we'll go, <coughs> excuse me, they'll go 40 miles today and then they would rest. Bad weather would come and they'd say, we'll rest another two days. Good weather would come and they would run 30 miles that day. Little by little, Scott's team started to wither away and die in the conditions of Antarctica. 
But Amundsen's team kept going every single day. And because they knew no matter what the conditions were, we are going to keep marching today. Church, what is this teaching us? It's precisely what God is teaching us in Joshua. He's teaching us that no matter what comes against us, no matter what the conditions we face, you and I are called to keep marching. That you and I are called to keep going. Even if it seems like there's no point in following God anymore, no point in keeping this word next to me anymore, God is still calling us, church, to keep going in this generation. It may seem like we've taken a thousand steps, but then God is saying, take a thousand more. Because the more and more you stay with him, you will start to see the plan unveil itself. You will start to see that the Jerichos in your life are starting to crumble as you walk along. Thomas Edison was a brilliant, brilliant inventor from the great state of New Jersey, by the way. Thomas Edison was a great, great inventor. He invents so many wonderful things that we use even to this very day. A reporter once asked Edison, How, why, what did it feel like to fail 1,000 times before you created the light bulb? How did it feel to fail knowing that you failed 1,000 times? Edison responds like this, I didn't fail. The light bulb was a process that took 1,000 steps. It, we needed to make those 1,000 failed steps in order to come to the one that succeeded. Church, you and I are called to keep walking in this generation, to keep pushing forward, to keep marching on even when everything seems to be against us. Because there are two things the circle first teaches us. Number one, that God does not have to work in our ways. Number two, that sometimes we will start at point A and end at point A, but we're called to keep walking. And here's what the circle also teaches us. Think about the fact that these men were marching around this city every single day. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a little bit. Imagine walking around a city, heavily fortified, impenetrable city, knowing full well that we have never won a military victory just by walking. And they're walking every day with the priests in front of them and they're marching around this city. If you and I were walking around that city, what would we do? I know what I'd do. I'd look at the city. I'd look at the walls and I would say, wow, these walls are huge. This is giant, this is not going to happen. We would stare at the walls, we would watch the walls, we would see how giant and how impossible these walls look. But understand this, church. Sometimes God has us walk around the walls just so that we can see how high the walls are, just so we can worship him even more when they come down. Do you see what I'm saying there? Sometimes God has us walk around the walls. Sometimes God has us go through the trials, go through the sickness, go through the depression, go through the troubles, so that one day when that wall comes down, you can worship him for how high that wall once was. You and I are called to worship God in moments when it seems like we have no reason to worship. When the walls look that high, when the walls are that mighty against us, when we walk around, we start to realize, Wow, these walls are giant. Wow, I can't do this by myself. This is when we start to sing that song, Lead Me to the Cross, when we say, rid me of myself, I belong to you. Rid me of myself. Every day when you say, Lord, less of me and more of you, he must increase and I must decrease. When you start to make your life about God, those walls start to come down and you start to worship God for walls that were once 40 feet high that are now crumbled at your feet in front of you. 
Many of you sitting here this morning are testimony to the simple fact, there was a time in my life when I thought everything was impossible, when I thought I would never get through this, but one day when I was just being obedient to God, when I was just marching around the walls of the city, God brought the walls of my Jericho down, and I am a witness to the fact that he answers prayers today. Hallelujah. Church, remember this. God is a God who sometimes leads us around Jericho so that we can see how big Jericho really is, so that we can see how mighty it can look in our eyes, so that one day when it comes down, we can worship him for the fact that it once was so big, but thanks to my even bigger God, it's now nothing in my life. Trust God, church. Trust him. Trust him as 2015 comes around the corner. Trust him more and more because he is doing something in you that you may not see the finished plan right now, but make no mistake, the planner is still working. Make no mistake, he's still in control. He's sovereign and he's working on our behalf. So march around the city even when you don't understand why. Keep marching. The last and final thing that I think the walls of Jericho teach us is this simple, simple concept. If you study those scripture portions we read today, it says like this, that God has the people march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day they march around seven times. That's many, many times walking around that same city. But not once does God ever say, take out the sword and then rush and attack. Never does he say, take out the battering ram and break down the wall. All he simply says is after the seventh time, the priests and the trumpets will will bellow out a loud noise and the people of God will shout and then the walls will come down. Let's make no mistake here. Follow the sequence here. First, I should probably tell you that when trumpets were blown in ancient times, there was a reason for it. Number one, it was either to assemble the people, or number two, it was to give a war cry or a worship after something had happened. You did not blow the trumpet before battle, you blew it after battle. After you'd won, you would blow the trumpet. But in this case, follow the sequence. God has them walk around the city, they blow the trumpet, and then the walls come down. They worship first, and then the walls come down. Follow me, church. They worship first, and then the walls come down. For some of us sitting here right now, it can seem completely out of order. Shouldn't I get my answer first and then worship God? Follow what the church should be doing, that we oftentimes, out of faith, should worship God first and then watch the walls come down in our lives. In 2014, many times, my biggest mistake is that I waited for God to answer and then I would thank him. But when 2015, if God gives it to me, what I want to do more and more, I want to worship God even when I don't see the answer. I want to worship him even if I don't get what I expect. I want to worship him at all times. Why? Not because he answered my prayer, but because he is God and he deserves my worship. Church, we need to get into an attitude and understanding that sometimes we need to blow the trumpet first and then the walls will come down. We are so confused sometimes, so fixed on the fact that first I have to get what I want and then I'll worship God. No, church, God deserves worship no matter what you and I get. Because he is God, he saved us, he fulfilled his promise on the cross of Calvary, he rose again from the dead, you and I have eternal life because of what he already did, he gets worship before whatever he gives me. This is why that we need to learn to blow the trumpet first and then, and then, and then receive our blessing. Blow the trumpet first and then receive what we are supposed to receive. 
Time is very short, so let me move forward quickly. So many times in the word of God, there are people who give God worship first and then receive their answers. In the book of 2 Chronicles, in the book of 2 Chronicles, there's a king named Jehoshaphat who goes up in, into one of the most incredible victories also that you ever see in the Old Testament. King Jehoshaphat, a young king who stands before three invading armies, three inv armies that want to destroy the people of Israel. He is heavily outnumbered in this battle. But what Jehoshaphat does is he orders the people to worship. He orders the priests to start singing. He does not send in the infantry. He sends in the choir. It's an amazing, amazing portion of scripture. Rather than sending in the battle, ra battlers, rather than sending in the soldiers, he sends in the choir. They start to sing. The worship catches like wildfire through the army. The army starts to worship, and immediately when they began to sing, the Lord threw the invading armies into a panic. The Ammonites, the Moabites, attacked the Edomite army and completely destroyed it, and they turned on each other in savage fighting. Think about this. It makes no human sense that the army began to sing and the enemies attacked each other. But that's the way God works sometimes. In the ways we least expect, he's asking us to worship first and then watch what happens. Worship first and then watch what happens. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward this morning. Sure, there's so many things that we may need to sort out from 2014. Maybe there's so many things that we need to anticipate and worry about for 2015. But today, can we worship first and then let the walls come down when God brings them down? Today, can we give God more worship from the bottom of our hearts today and then let the walls come down? Can we worship him with all that we have, church? Because we are called to keep walking in the midst of our struggles. Maybe the diagnosis is not good, keep walking, church. Maybe our children are not where we expect them to be, keep walking, church. Maybe the bank account is not where we expect it to be, keep walking, church. When you are in obedience, when you keep walking in the direction that the Lord has called you to walk, one day, at some point, after your worship has reached heaven, you will see the walls of Jericho come down in your lives. But first, let's give him worship because he deserves it. Regardless of the outcome, he deserves worship. And that's why we're here today. Remember, church, we are all writing God's story today. Every one of us, as we close 2014 and worship God for the many blessings of this past year, as we look forward to a new year, you and I may think at times, I'm writing my story on earth, but make no mistake, we're writing his story on earth. Because God's story is about God's glory. It's the same story that started in Eden, the story that went into Abraham, the story that went into Isaac and Jacob and, and all of his generations, the story that went into Daniel, the story that went into King David, the story that continued into the New Testament, the story that led the Son of God up a hill called Calvary and nailed him to a Roman cross. That story is continuing today, and you and I are writing that story. You and I are part of the greatest story ever written. It's God's story. But every time we make it about us, we stop making it about him. Today, let's write this story about God's glory. Let's give him glory. Let's give him worship. He deserves it. Lord, I worship you today because you are God. God over every wall in my life. God over every obstacle and hurdle that I experience. God, I'm going to give you worship today just because you are God and you deserve it. Let's rise to our feet today, church. As we begin singing and worshiping today, let's thank God for every victory that we have not seen yet.
every wall that's about to come down that we have not experienced yet. Because first we have to blow the trumpet and then the walls come down. Let's worship him for what we have not even received yet. For the promises that have been over your lives for many years. The promises to, for salvation. The promises for healing. The promises for deliverance. The promises for those unsaved members of your families. The promises over your lives can be fulfilled, will be fulfilled. But first, let's give him worship today. For God's story is about God's glory. I'm going to pray for us first. And then we're going to lead together in some singing. And we're going to worship the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I praise you, Lord God, this morning for your people, for every victory of 2014, Lord God, for every answered prayer that we enjoyed this past year, for every blessing that we forgot to thank you for. I thank you for the days ahead of us if you give them to us. I thank you for every victory that we're about to have, every victory that we will one day enjoy. More than that, I thank you because you are God, sovereign over the universe, sovereign over my life, sovereign over my family, sovereign over every situation I go through. And though I may not understand why I'm going through what I'm going through right now, I trust you, the same God who led Joshua around the walls of Jericho, is the same God that I serve today. And I give you worship before I get my answer. I give you worship before I see the answer. I give you thanks and praise for you alone deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. Bless your people now, O oh God, as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.